Well, welcome. My name's Ken Jenkins, and um, I'm serving as an elder uh, here at Bowling Green Covenant, and uh, also as a part of the teaching team. And uh, we're continuing with our look at the book of Colossians. And uh, the verses that I have this morning are chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Before we get into the text, um, I want to take a little time to talk about the author, uh, Brother Paul. So, let me see if this will work. Yes, okay. So Saul, Paul, who is this guy? And I think having some understanding about Paul help us understand what he's written. He's arguably one of the most read authors in the history of the written language. Um, he is mentioned in the New Testament uh, over 200 times by the name of Paul and uh, 32 times by Saul. Approximately half of the book of Acts deals with his life and ministry. 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament have been traditionally attributed to Paul. Uh, Seven of the epistles are undisputed by scholars as being authentically written by Paul. There's some disagreement about some of the other uh, books, such as Hebrews. Um, He established between 20 and 100 churches during his lifetime and traveled over 12,000 miles in doing so. To start out, he was born Saul in the city of Tarsus, and that was a free Roman city in the region of uh, Cilia, and probably around between 5 B.C. and 5 A.D. Uh, He was a Roman citizen, and in those days they didn't give Roman citizenship out to people outside of Italy, uh, unless you did something to earn it. So his family was probably a prominent family in Tarsus, probably philanthropic, um, good standing in the community. And I came across this little tidbit, which I thought was interesting. I'd never seen this before. He actually had some relatives that uh, came to know Jesus before he did. Did you know that? (laughs) Because he talks in Romans sixteen seventy, he talks about greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I just thought that was interesting. I'd never seen that before. He describes himself as the Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, of which tribe also his namesake was, Saul, in the Old Testament. Um, Tarsus was known as the Little Athens, and it was a place of learning. There was a famous university there, which he most likely attended and studied Greek philosophy and poetry. And then, uh, while Jesus was working as a carpenter, Paul was sent to Jerusalem to attend university. Uh, and to sit under one of the most respected rabbis of the day, Gamil. And you can consider Paul, after his training under Gamil, to be what we would recognize today 
as a professor of Jewish theolo- uh, religious law and theology. But, in addition, he also had a blue-collar trade. He was a tent maker, which you might think, well, that's interesting, professor of Jewish religious law and tent maker. That's an odd combination. But it really wasn't that odd because in those days, uh, the scholars also typically had another trade uh, to fall back on in case the scholarly business wasn't bringing home the bacon. So, uh, and also there was a saying at the time that said that a man didn't, who didn't treat, teach his son a trade taught him to steal. So um, Saul, is a, or, yeah, Saul is a very interesting and complex person, as you can see from that part of uh, just seeing his life. Uh, traditionally, he was beheaded in Rome sometime around 64 A.D., at the age of 61. Um, the first place we encounter him is in Acts 7. Um, Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin council and accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. <clears throat> and I should also note these were false accusations produced by false witnesses who were persuaded to bring them against him. And in Stephen's defense, he lays out very carefully for the Sanhedrin, Jesus the Messiah, in the context of their whole history as God's people. And he ends up with a rather scathing indictment of them, which goes like this, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, Jesus. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but not obeyed it. And needless to say, the Sanhedrin was not very thrilled with Stephen's estimate of them. They judged him to be a blasphemer and a heretic. And Stephen knows what comes next after that. Uh, He knows he's a dead man walking, or rather, soon to be dragged. And in that moment, God grants him great grace and peace and a glimpse of his reward. And Stephen says this, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Something that's not clear from the text is, was Paul present when Stephen gave his presentation to the Sanhedrin? Which ends with Stephen's closing proclamation. I like to think he was, but like I say, it's not clear. So they dragged Stephen to the outside of town to be executed. And uh, there are those who will perform the execution, and there are those who are witnesses. It's all done according, properly according to Jewish law. These witnesses drop their coats off at the feet of a young man, and they're kind of like, you know, we're going we're gonna to be over here stoning this guy. Could you, could you watch our coats? That's, that's Saul. He's the young man. So there are witnesses to the execution of Stephen, and Saul is as well. So Saul watches this man, Stephen, uh, be pummeled to death with rocks, which is a brutal way to die. Um, Basically, they just keep 
throwing rocks at you till you die. Um, very painful, very, very bloody, very brutal. And he's not, he's in, at the end, Stephen says this, right before he dies, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, of the men who were stoning him to death. And you would be very correct in thinking back to Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not realize what they're doing. Now, Paul was in no way sympathetic to Stephen. Acts 1 says that Saul approved of them killing him. But I'm going to suggest that on this day, Saul heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord and saw firsthand a man who was willing to suffer and die to make that proclamation and to die with forgiveness and mercy on his lips and in his heart rather than anger and vengeance. I think that left an impression on Saul. I believe God used it to sow seeds of what was to come in Paul's life. And I think the impression of Stephen's martyrdom stayed with Paul even as he vigorously continued to persecute the church. I think he was always in there that he, what he witnessed. So as a result of the judgment of Stephen by the Sanhedrin and his subsequent stoning, there was a great persecution that broke out then in Jerusalem. And it says all but the apostles were scattered. They were scattered into Samaria in Judea. Now Saul is all trained up. He's all geared up. He's all zealous, ready to go about the business of making sure these new heretics on the scene, these so-called followers of Christ, are rooted out. So he starts to systematically go from house to house, literally dragging men and women out of their homes and causing them to be put into prison. Fast forward a little bit. Saul has been doing this long enough as he's gained a pretty notorious reputation and one that's spread outside of Jerusalem, even as far as Damascus, which is where he's heading next. Uh, we see later that Ananias, the brother that Christ sends to Paul, was well aware of his reputation as a Christian hunter and uh, was not that all that excited about the prospects of meeting up with him. So he has his papers in hand, from uh, Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem, introducing to the synagogues in Damascus. And he's on his way there with a team of religious police to return some fugitive Hellenistic Jewish Christians to Jerusalem for trial. Paul is like, I'm on mission, life is good, and I'm confident God is really pleased with me as I go after these Christians. There's an old saying, it says, life is what happens to us when we're busy making other plans. So, in the case of Paul, he has other plans for his life, but Jesus personally intercepts Paul on the road between Jerusalem and Damascus. And if you think of who Saul is at this time, um, it should come as no surprise that this intercepting him needed to be somewhat dramatic. Paul was 
like I say, on mission, and he wasn't going to come quietly when Jesus called. Some of you didn't either. So Jesus says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? This is actually a Greek proverb, but also familiar to the Jews and to anybody who made their living uh, in agriculture at the time. It's okay for Jesus to use a Greek proverb to get his point across, isn't it? Yeah. So an ox goad is like a stick with a metal sharpie thing on the end. And, uh, and you, when you're plowing, you know, you uh, want the, the ox to go this way, so you give it a jab. So if the ox, like, the jab, he'll go that way, everything's fine. But sometimes they, they don't like that, so they kind of, like, do one of these things. You know, they just kick out. And when they do that, of course, it jabs the stick further into them. So that's what Jesus is referring to with Paul. And we don't know exactly what the goads are, but I think that since the time that Paul witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen, there has been working in his heart a nagging doubt that maybe this persecuting of the Christians is not really what God wanted. Maybe there was something to this Jesus character. I think down in Paul's heart, you know, as, as the Lord did in many of our hearts, uh, he begins to convict us. He begins to cause us to ask questions, to doubt that maybe the way that we've plotted out for ourselves is, is not really the best way. So I think all along, Jesus has been after uh, Saul. I mean, there is this conference, this dramatic confrontation on the road to Damascus. But I think all along, just as God has been in our hearts, working to draw us to himself, to make a case for himself in our hearts. So getting Paul's attention, though, involves a blinding light in the middle of the day, flattening Saul to the ground, speaks to him audibly, and in the end he goes as far as to strike him blind, where he doesn't eat or drink anything for the next three days. Meanwhile, the Lord is arranging for brother Ananias to meet Paul, to deliver his healing and the message that Paul is to be Jesus has chosen an instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. And somewhat as an aside to Ananias, Jesus makes the following statement. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. As I said before, Ananias was not all that excited about this meeting, since Saul is a rather notorious character in the Christian community of the day, and a guy you'd more or less like to keep from. So then it begins, Paul, after he rests up and is healed and recovers, gains his strength, he starts to preach Jesus the Messiah in the synagogues in Damascus. And the initial reaction of the people is, wait a minute, um, are we talking about the same guy here? This The guy who has caused all this havoc in Jerusalem and 
who came here specifically to arrest these followers of Jesus, now he's in the synagogues preaching Jesus as the Messiah? That was their initial reaction. Ultimately, they plotted to kill him, uh, and he had to hightail it out of Damascus and back to Jerusalem. He also was not really received with open arms back in Jerusalem at first either. Because a couple weeks ago, remember, he's dragging people out of their houses and sending them off to prison. So now he's back. He wants to get with the disciples. The disciples are kind of like, eh, I don't know, you know. Um, so they're all kind of afraid of him. Eventually, Barnum's kind of brings him in. This encounter on the road to Damascus was to cost Paul his life. Whatever plans he had before that were gone. Now he was the servant of God. Which brings me to my first verse. <laughs> took a long time to get here, I know. And that is Colossians 1.24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, make sure you hear this really clearly. Paul does not mean in any way that the sufferings of Christ and his death on the cross were incomplete, requiring additional suffering from Paul or anyone else in order to be effectual. So hear that. This is what he's not saying. All right? If, in fact, if Paul had any thought that that's how you were taking what he was saying, he would be horrified. Christ's suffering and death were the, as, uh, were the price a just and righteous God required to buy us back from death, and that price was paid in full by Jesus, period. So what is lacking in, the, in Christ's afflictions? Well, what's lacking is I can't see Jesus suffer for me. The scripture tells me that he suffered for me. But I can't stand in front of the cross and see him suffer for me. I can't see his, hear his gracious words of forgiveness as he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They can, people can, can't see that today. I can't see that today. But people can see us. They can see our lives. They can see our willingness to suffer. Our willingness to lay down our lives on their behalf. And this is what Paul is speaking about. Paul didn't have a chance to see Jesus' life and his suffering. He did have a chance to see Stephen, though. And to see how this man suffered and died and yet was willing to forgive and to be gracious. Paul saw that. And I think this is what Paul is talking about. And he's saying that we have an opportunity when we suffer to, to make up for the fact that people could not see Jesus' suffering, could not see Jesus' life. They see him through us. And there are some, a number of verses that 
allude to this. I've really been getting behind on my slides here, haven't I? Huh. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. People believe in actions and less and less in words. There's so many words that are thrown at us every day. But an unselfish act speaks of love. A personal inconvenience suffered for someone else's good with no thought or expectation of reward speaks of love and testifies of the reality of Christ and his work in our lives in a special way. So we're called to suffer. And we're called to do it with love in our hearts and forgiveness in our hearts. Now, we're not to measure our suffering with that of others. Our challenge is to recognize the suffering that Christ asks of each of us and to embrace it along with the grace and strength that comes with it. Our suffering can be a testament to his love. Our willingness to endure unfair judgment, to be falsely accused, to be ostracized, ridiculed, or misunderstood, and yet through it maintain love and grace in our hearts, is a powerful testimony that God is real, His Spirit is real, and His Son is the risen Lord. And Paul's life was that. Why did people listen to Paul? Why was he able to start a hundred churches? Why did people believe the message that he spoke? He wasn't, by all accounts, accounts, an extremely eloquent speaker, nor was he physically impressive. In fact, there's actually some uh, historical evidence that he may have been a very short guy. But it was the testimony of his life which stood behind his words. It was the suffering that people were able to see him bear in his life and the afflictions that gave weight to his words. True to Jesus' remarks to Ananias, Paul was to suffer. And we get a little summary, actually, from Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 21. Paul says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool here. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abram's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. But I am more. I've worked much harder I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You ever wonder about that? 40 lashes minus one. 
The reason, I looked it up. The reason is, 40 lashes was what was prescribed. But if you gave a guy 41 lashes, then you were in sin. So they would always like cut it back by one in case they lost count. True. All right. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. Spent a day and night in the open sea. I've constantly been on the move, and I have been in danger. Dangers? Like from what, Paul? Oh, just from rivers, bandits, my fellow Jews, Gentiles, false believers. And where have you been in danger, Paul? Oh, in the city, in the country, at sea, pretty much everywhere. Thanks for asking. I've labeled and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And beside everything else, I face the daily burden constantly on my heart for all the churches, my dear children in the faith. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. And Damascus, the governor and their king, Artas, had the city guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered from a basket over the wall and slipped through his hands. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And... Well, it doesn't work as well as it ought to. <laughs> In uh, verse 25, then he, he goes on and says, I have become its servant, the church, by the commission God gave to me to present to you the work of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. This mystery is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. Something that I always try to keep in mind in my heart is all knowledge that's of any value and worth is disclosed. It says, this mystery hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed. Well, who disclosed it? God himself disclosed it. Any knowledge worth of value and worth is disclosed. It's revealed knowledge. God revealed it to our hearts and minds by his grace and mercy. Everything I hold dear, everything that makes my life worthwhile and gives me joy, God convinced my heart and mind of through his patient instruction and faithful discipline over 42 years of me stumbling and bumbling after him. None of it is stuff I figured out for myself. It's all stuff that God, through his grace and mercy, showed me. The rest of what I know is somewhat useful, but it's going away soon. 
It says that God chose to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the culmination of all these ages and generations during which the true purposes of God were hidden has culminated in him dwelling among us, living and dying for us. Having been raised from the dead, and he wishes to live in our hearts and be present in this world through his spirit that is in us. Not an inspiration that moves us to do good things, but the living presence and power of God who is in us doing good things through us. The other part of the mystery is that this was not just for the Jews. The other part of the mystery was actually the part that Paul himself was called to. And that was that it was God's intention that all men be able to call upon his name and hope in him. And he actually refers back to a verse in Isaiah that says, There shall come the root of Jesse... And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. We can have joy and peace because of who we believed. We can have abundant hope because he lives in us by his Spirit. He's the hope of all humanity, not just those who are of the lineage of Abraham. It's difficult for us to understand today how radical that message was at the time, even the apostles. But Paul, he was called to take that message to the Gentiles. Um, Verse 128 And this is the testimony of Paul's life. He is the one that we proclaim. So, you know, you you look back on the life of Paul and you see a man who went to university, who had the best education that a young Jewish man could have at the time. And over and over again through the scripture, you see him saying, I don't care about any of that. I have one thing that I'm proclaiming. I am proclaiming Jesus Christ. And I think that's the beautiful thing about Paul's life, is that if other people had any platform to stand on in terms of their intellectual education, their knowledge, their theological soundness, um, Paul could stand right there with them. He had the training, he had the pedigree, he had the background, But he would set it all aside and he would basically say, I only want you to know one thing. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know his power and the gospel. So Paul was called by Jesus and to proclaim him to the Gentiles. And he adds admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. 
To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And Christ is powerfully working in you every day as well. The purpose of God working in us is to complete the good work that he started. Consider these verses. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Hebrews 13.20 Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is completing the work that he started in us and making us a testimony to his love and grace. Jesus is the one that we proclaim. And we want to always keep that in our hearts and minds. We have a lot of truth that God has given us, and we can sometimes get a little sidetracked in various other truths that we've been given um, to share. But let's always keep in mind that he's the one that we proclaim. And in celebrating communion, we're told that by it we proclaim the Lord's death, his suffering and death on our behalf. And as we get ready to take communion, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, help us every day to have